So I don't know if you've ever followed up comments sections. You know, here's a story that's reported in a newspaper. If you go online and you look at the people who are writing it and commenting on it, it's clear to me that there is an awful lot of rage that's going around here. And many people would say, well, that's fine. Rage is perfectly fitting for some dreadful crimes. Nussbaum is sceptical about anger having any place. She talks about something called transitional anger, which she does regard as valuable. And what she means by that is an anger that motivate, draws attention to something terrible and motivates us. It's a signal, if you like, and it motivates us to think about what the best response ought to be. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, six o'clock UK time for a fresh podcast. Rob Canton is Professor in Community and Criminal Justice at De Montfort University, Leicester in the UK. Before joining De Montfort, he worked in the probation service for some 20 years in a different number of roles. Rob has guested on our podcast previously. So Rob has contributed to probation development and general penal reform in more than 10 different countries, mostly in Europe. He served on the Council of Europe to develop and revise European rules relating to probation and acted as a specialist advisor to the House of Commons Justice Select Committee in its inquiry into the role of the probation service. He did that in 2010. Rob has written a number of articles and book chapters, as well as authoring a number of books. His latest book is called Punishment, which is published by Routledge. He kindly sent us a chapter read in preparation for this podcast, and it's great to have an opportunity to speak with you today, Rob. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed it very much last time. Well, we did too, Rob, which is why we're really glad to have you back on today. But perhaps um, as a bit of an overview for anyone who didn't listen to your previous podcast, could you just tell us a bit about how you came to be so interested in the role that emotions play in the criminal justice system and punishment in particular? Yes, thank you. I, punishment, I suppose, because I have been my professional background as a practitioner, as you've already said, was in the probation service. So questions of how, why and whether we punish people um, have preoccupied me professionally and academically for an, uh, my whole career. And I think I came to become particularly interested in emotion for mainly two reasons. To, one, to some extent, I was following a, a current that was <clears throat> shaped mainly by some other people, Ian Loder, Richard Sparks, and a few others who said that it's we need to be much more aware than we have been about the way in which emotion shapes and guides the uh, way in which uh, criminal justice policy uh, uh, develops. I think there's also another side to it. Um, in cognitive behavioural psychology, which is something that I've endeavoured, it's very uh, topical in probation and has been for many years, they often begin with what they call the cognitive behavioural triangle, and I know this is very familiar to you and to many of the people listening, with behaviour and thoughts and feelings. And having constructed that, it seems to me often that probation in particular has immediately lost sight of 
sight of the side of feelings, the missing side of the triangle, the mysterious case of. And uh, <clears throat> in co many conversations with colleagues, I've tried to see if we can revive that. So immediately it's about cognitive behavior and they lock in on behavior and cognition and feelings gets rather set aside. So I think it was those, the, the, the political and um, policy side of, of punishment, but also the experiences of being a practitioner and also helping to train and educate others to be practitioners. Thank you. And I suspect probation probably isn't the only profession that loses sight of the emotional element of, of that triangle. Yes. Do you, do you think there's a lack of honesty about the influence that emotion has in the criminal justice system? I think sometimes it may be a lack of honesty, but <clears throat> perhaps more often it's a lack of insight rather than that. So I don't really want to impute bad faith to people who deny its significance. Um, I think part of the problem here is there is a belief that the emotion, the place that the emotional is directly opposite to and antithetical to the rational. And most psychologists, I think, nowadays reject that way of framing the idea that we have reason on one side and we have emotion on the other and they're always intention. But it's still deeply embedded in much of our philosophical tradition. And I think it's a, a quite a common trope, isn't it, in political debate? Our position is rational, considered, it's based on evidence. Our opponents is distorted by emotion, prejudice and ideology. So I think that it's quite difficult for someone to escape from that um, and say and to recognize and acknowledge the way in which emotion does play its part because it's it's regarded as a little bit dodgy. Do you think it's even possible to, to make a legal judgment that's not tainted by emotion? Well, the word tainted is a bit loaded, isn't it? I mean, in a sense, we, we need to be careful that we don't buy into the precisely into the, the a distinction that I've just rejected. You might say, is it possible to make a legal judgment that isn't enriched by emotion? Although I suppose it might be tainted by the wrong kind of emotion. So, well, in law, there's sometimes there are factual disputes, aren't there, about who did what and when and the significance of it. But as soon as we get into the question of significance, we are then having to make judgments. And I think most of the judgments we make are in one way or another influenced by um, emotions. So certainly when it comes to the apportioning of punishment, almost all the considerations that come into uh, informed judgments are guided by emotions. So we deliberate about harm and responsibility. And I don't see how one can weigh up questions like that when we're thinking about harmfulness, about impacts on victims and so forth. And we're thinking about what was intended and the extent to which we should take account of adverse experiences in the defendant's life and so forth, maybe all aggravating and mitigating factors. All of these reckonings draw upon moral intuitions and those moral intuitions <clears throat> are substantially inspired, I think, by emotions. Seems right, doesn't it? It seems as though kind of like people who are pushing to ensure um, there's a harsher sentence are going to be um, working to create more of a sense of fear or, or other sort of strong negative feelings about, about the offence or the mitigating arguments are trying to perhaps appeal to um, some compassion and kindness in, in, in allocating a sentence. 
I think if I may interrupt you, Naomi, I think sure. the, um, the, the, the point there about compassion is a really good one, because sometimes people will articulate their preferences about punishment in the language of compassion, particularly the importance of honouring and respecting the horrible experience that victims have undergone. But that perhaps sometimes masks the anger um, that is really driving or the fear that is really driving their, their reaction every bit as influentially. And certainly, although things are getting better now, um, it's only really within the last 30 years or so that championing the victim has led anywhere useful in terms of doing anything for victims. Having said, oh, gosh, I really feel sorry for the victim. They've then heaped all of that onto more and more punishment and then walked away from the real needs of, of, of victims as well, incidentally, as failing to recognise that victims and offenders are not separate tribes and that many people who commit crimes have themselves extensive experience of victimization. Yeah, that's very, very well put, Rob. Um, does, it, does it matter if punishment is driven by emotion rather than reason? Isn't, isn't that to some degree inevitable? And... Well, I think it is inevitable. Um, and there are many psychologists, and as you know, Naomi, you're a psychologist, I'm not, um, but there are many psychologists who think that our decisions are all the better because of the influence of emotion and that if we try to uh, eliminate emotion we will first of all we will almost certainly fail but secondly our judgments will be impoverished uh, for, for, for that reason so um, the only thing I'd add to this is that we mustn't fall in we're talking about emotion a lot this morning the ground, the foregrounding of emotion shouldn't mean that reason has no part to play. Um, doesn't have to mean that. And on the contrary, I think that our emotions are susceptible to rational scrutiny <clears throat> and may change in the light of new information. And when we become aware of different perspectives, and if you think about it, if we, if two people are disagreeing about an appropriate punishment. Um, it's often apparent with the if only with the vehemence with which they express themselves that emotion is very much part of the story. But if you ask them to explain the views that they hold, they're not reduced to passionate emoting. Typically, they'll put forward reasons to explain uh, why they hold the position that they do. So I'm not sure which is in the driving seat, although we may want to talk a little bit more about that. But I think both emotion and reason can and inevitably can and should play a part in determinations of punishment. Well, I was just reflecting back on the, the question <clears> I asked you earlier and realised that actually probably what I meant when I asked about the legal judgment being tainted was being tinted by emotion, which is more emotionally neutral, but actually the tainted probably was a, a Freudian slip um <laughs> and, and I also asked you about a, a lack of honesty about an emotion I suppose partly I think because you know I've sat in places like Cate board reviews where people have spoken about um somebody not having reduced their risk and actually not really basing it on anything clearly other than the fact you know when asked what, what factors were being considered, there was a, a deep abhorrence of the, the person's crime. Um, and so I think had the person said, you know, I, I find this really, um, really awful, it would, it, it would allow for that to be part of the discussion 
in a way that allows people to think about whether what they want is reasonable or proportionate um, or whether it's been unduly influenced by emotion, I think. If I may say so, I think that's an absolute bullseye. And some of your questions will bring us back, I think, to, to that question, because sometimes some of our emotions can masquerade as other kinds of emotions because it's easier to articulate some sentiments than others. One, one of the things that you write in your chapter is uh, when relying on sentencing guidelines, regulations and professional norms, practitioners are not so much setting aside the emotional as simply recycling the emotions of others. What did you mean by this? Well, it, it followed on from the point that we've just been talking through about the way in which emotion enters into judgment. And I was keen to anticipate the objection uh, from some people uh, that respect for case law and sentencing guidelines and so forth eliminates the emotional where people might say well we're professional we're not guided by emotions um, we have these guidelines we have these regulations case law we professional norms so that's got nothing to do with emotion but I want to insist that the, those guidelines were themselves crafted by people who were themselves influenced by the emotional in, in forming those judgments. So what I think all this amounts to is I, I'm wanting to make the claim that the law cannot and shouldn't try to divorce itself entirely from moral intuitions. And these intuitions are themselves molded, though not necessarily determined by emotions. Perhaps I can just add that <clears throat> one, of the one of the things that was important to me in the, in the book that I've, I've written is that Although there's been a lot of talk in the literature about recognising the importance of the emotional and trying to suggest some of the implications of that, because it isn't always easy to change people's feelings by evidence, uh, sometimes that, that doesn't work. Um, to me, it was important to disentangle precisely which emotions are at play. And I know that we'll be coming to that in a bit. So rather than talking over generally about the emotional, there are lots and lots of emotions and they're not always easy to specify. Our language sometimes lets us down here because it's hard to articulate the, the feelings that, that we have. Um, and that at least two examples of that coming up. Um, but I think we do need to separate them out because if you're right, and I'm sure you are right, Naomi, that sometimes in conferences like this, people are speaking risk and fear, but evincing anger or disgust, then if we simply try to address the risk factors, we're going to miss the point because we'll be in the wrong register. Thank you, Rob. Can you tell us what is dual process theory and how it's relevant to justice? Yes, it's some, again, not absolutely my field, but it's something that I came across when I was uh, reading for the book and uh, made sense to me. So rather than relying on this distinction, which I think is an unhelpful one between emotion and reason, dual process theory says that we, we have two modes of thinking. And sometimes what they talk about is they, they say that the, one of these systems is often described as immediate and intuitive and unconscious and automatic, whereas the second system, system two, is more reflective, it's more conscious and considered and analytic and also sometimes slow. 
And the use of the word automatic, I think somebody has likened this to a camera. So your camera has certain default settings. And if like me, you're not really very good at photography, you just click the automatic button and say to the camera, you get on with it because you're cleverer than I am. But the more sophisticated photographers recognize that they can get a, a good enough snap with the automatic, but a better photograph might be if they begin to take control of themselves and begin to tweak, adjust, and to tune those particular settings. So this is where system two comes into play and might be able to expose the emotions that are driving us, challenge those and the implications of that, adduce other considerations, including emotional considerations, that, that might play out, you know, lead to different judgments. So to give you an example of what I mean by the provision of additional information, uh, which might change your perspective, um, you may start by thinking that a crime is utterly abhorrent and your emotions are at play because you're reacting with, with anger and fear and disgust. But then you come to learn something more about the context. You may begin to learn a little bit more about the biography of the individual behind this and other sentiments, compassion, not only for the victims, but also maybe for the perpetrators uh, begin to enter that picture. And that additional information uh, might lead you to think about things rather differently. So because reason and emotion enter into both of those modes, it's it's it, we shouldn't think that system one is emotional and system two is rational both are at play in both of those modes of thinking but i do find the distinction quite useful and a lot of people have, have written about this kahneman and tversky and um jonathan Haidt, who i think is also very height is very insightful on, on these topics thank you that that's uh, very interesting really it reminds me a lot actually of a the work that I've done where I've often received from somebody a very rapid response to something I've said and I've thought and then I may even have said well perhaps this is something that needs to be thought about a bit more deeply so I was envisaging thinking taking place at different levels really and of course a lot of the people I've worked with have been extremely bright people particularly at this what I think of as top level thinking response uh, yeah, mode. And maybe we can both of us, all of us reflect on um, social media and what this has done, because, you know, there was a time when if you wanted to tell someone how you felt about them, you'd have to go out and get yourself a bottle of ink and come home and write out a letter and then find a postage stamp, by which time you had begun to think a little bit differently, perhaps. Um, now in social media, you can wing off something which you may later come to regret, but you've painted yourself into a corner. You don't necessarily want to concede everything. And for me, this is one of the uh, things I like about email. I suspect most of us have had the experience of reading an email and thinking, well, blow that for a lark, and then thinking, no, no, let's just walk away from this, maybe go out for a walk or have a cup of tea or sleep on it <laughs> before framing our reply. Yeah, there was my colleague, former colleague, Mark Morris, who told me that he always kept uh, space on his uh, computer for emails he hadn't yet sent and probably uh, never would. <laughs> yeah, very wise. Hmm. So within the chapter that we were reading, you focus specifically on anger, fear and disgust. So why did you choose these particular emotions? Well, 
the most familiar attempts to, to justify punishment appeal, I think, to retributive justice and desert on the one hand, or on the other hand, the need to try to reduce crime. And one question that arises then is, well, what sentiments are involved in retributive justice <clears throat> and crime reduction? I think in a way, crime reduction here is it's an easier question to answer. We are apprehensive, concerned, and in the worst cases, fearful about the repetition or the, you know, the proliferation of certain kinds of crime. So the wish to reduce its incidence, I think, one underlying, underlying sentiment here might be, might be fear. As for retribution, I've learned a lot here from the, the scholarship of um, the American philosopher, Martha Nussbaum, who suggests that retribution is essentially fueled by anger. And you only have to look at reactions to horrible crimes or to sentences that are considered to be inadequate in newspaper columns, in social media, all over the place to see how true it is that, that anger is, is palpable and, and visible in all of this. So I don't know if you've ever followed up comments sections. You know, here's a story that's reported in a newspaper. If you go online and you look at the people who are writing it and commenting on it, it's clear to me that there is an awful lot of rage that's going around here. And many people would say, well, that's fine. Rage is perfectly fitting for some dreadful crimes. Nussbaum is sceptical about anger having any place. She talks about something called transitional anger, which she does regard as valuable. And what she means by that is an anger that motivate, draws attention to something terrible and motivates us. It's a signal, if you like, and it motivates us to think about what the best response ought to be. But we should not then carry along on the path uh, where our anger might lead us. And I think, as I've said, even those of us, even those people who can see a place for anger would recognize that we need to be careful. Not many people think that anger brings out the best in us or helps us to make measured and principled judgments. So even if we think, yes, this is such an awful thing, we should be cross about it. We maybe need to think, well, okay, but, but what's, what are the implications of that? What, what should follow from the anger we, we now feel? And I, I can't remember whether or not we'll be coming to this later, but I've in the book, I've compared the process of, of grieving. And some people would say that if somebody has been bereaved and lost a, a loved one, a very common, and some would say an altogether healthy part of a grieving process is to be angry for, for all kinds of, uh, of reasons. But anger, should maybe a place on the path, but it shouldn't be the destination. And I feel quite strongly myself, I could even say it makes me angry, that the media sometimes talk up and cultivate anger. So we can think of some, I don't want to talk about too many, if any, particular cases, but we can think about some atrocious crimes that have sometimes hit the headlines. And then a couple of years down the line, uh, newspapers looking for a story, something's happened, somebody might be coming to a time of release, or there may be some other kind of significant event, and they will approach the victims and say, 
surely you're outraged, aren't you, that this person is now being considered for release? And they continue to poke away and to, uh, to at this very, very sore place, uh, rather than people moving towards some kind of way of living a life in which that event does no longer dominates them in the way that it inevitably will in the aftermath. So this longer process of, um, of anger resolution. But disgust, I haven't mentioned, and do you want me to, to mention this now? Because I think we're going to talk a bit more about it in a minute. Well, we, we can talk about it now. We do come on to it later on when we're yeah. talking about Dominic Raab. But, you know. Yes, well, I think the thing about disgust here is that I've come to think that anger and fear alone don't capture it. There will be times when I think what people are expressing when they react to, to various, what they believe to be insufficient penalties or prospects of release and so forth, where what they are essentially saying, if there was a subtitle um, beneath what they are actually, well, the, the words that they're articulating, the subtitle would read, these are people who are not fit to live among us. And therefore, assurances about safety or even about assuaged anger because a sufficient penalty has now been paid don't again do enough because it's not really that that's happening um that, that that's not the the major influence disgust is and i've mentioned i've confessed already that like many people i find it difficult to find the right words to describe emotional experiences that are often very, very messy and don't easily lend themselves to the tidy categories of speech. And disgust seems to me too strong in some cases. Disgust may be what is felt for the worst of crimes, but even much more trivial crimes, I think, have a residual, leave a residual sense of disdain, contempt, mistrust, I'm not quite sure such that people applying for a job and have to declare a criminal conviction, their questions are raised about whether they are a good character or a good enough character. This stigma of bad character can, can endure. As I say, I'm not sure that anybody feels disgusted, really, about somebody who committed a, you know, perhaps a lot of thefts 10 years ago, um, but, but they might nevertheless regard this person as in some sense doubtful and view them in a different way um, from the way in which they would view them had they not had that record. Yeah, no, that's very interesting because it seems to me that disgust operates like so many things on different levels. So clearly there are deep cultural factors that go back tens of hundreds of thousands of years um, and which emerge, you know, certain circumstances, but they're also that it's also possible to evoke a sense of disgust in a much more superficial uh, manner, which will fade, but which has some kind of powerful value to those who want to evoke the the, the feeling. So, which is why I think so much of our politics is driven by outrage and anger. Uh, and disgust. Shall we talk a little bit about fear before we go back to disgust? Because I know yes. Naomi's got a couple of questions or you have up your sleeve about disgust later on. And I would think it's such an interesting and neglected topic and that I'd like to return to it. But shall we talk a bit more about fear first? Tell us about uh, fear then and why it's so intertwined with uh, crime and public attitudes towards, towards crime. 
Yeah, um, I wouldn't pretend to uh, to be able to answer these, this or any other question definitively, but it seems to me that there's considerable political capital that can be gained by when, when politicians suggest that their policies are going to make us safer and those of our opponents are going to make for a much more dangerous community. And you can see this all the time, can't you? There's debates at the moment have just come up again because of what's happening with the mayor of London has suggested a different approach to cannabis and there are debates going on and there on one side you have people who are saying well yes maybe it'd be all right to legalize cannabis and others are saying oh gosh the, you know the, look at the harm that it does uh, are you if you legalize it it's all going to be so much worse there's going to be more taken and so forth so here I think we do have people evincing at least apprehension um, and, and perhaps uh, a, the stronger sentiment of, of fear. But an important matter here is that crime stands for things. It can become a convenient proxy as a focus for anxieties that have other kinds of origins. And there are research studies that show that at times of economic shift and particular times of recession, tough penal policies are likely to chime better with the public mood. And this is of some personal interest to me because a very, very long time ago, uh, more than 20 years, I did uh, some work in Ukraine. I went to Ukraine on a number of occasions where we were trying to help Ukraine, which was then a transitional democracy. It aspired to be uh, democratic rather than and, and to shake off some of aspects of its Soviet legacy seems odd to be talking in this way in 2022 but, but all those years ago this was this was how it was and we were trying to encourage people to think about ways of responding to crime that didn't involve sending people to squalid horrible uh, prisons that were packed to the rafters and and so forth and it was particularly difficult to do because everybody was hard up. Everyone felt alarmed. They didn't know where democracy was going to take them. They were anxious about levels of crime because people were hard up. There was a lot of predictable rises in economic crime because the police were trying to make themselves more approachable and become more like democratic police officers. Uh, for those reasons, they were learning about more crime because people were telling them that there was crime. So the, uh, the, uh, the nasty tabloid press in, in Ukraine, sorry, I don't mean to imply that that is the case with all papers, but those who wanted to make political capital say, you see, this is what happens when you let these soppy characters from Leicester come over and advise you, you get more crime um, and you get people being let off. And this really chimed with the, with the public sentiment. We'd say, make sure your prisoners have an adequate and nutritious diet to which the reply was, what are you talking about? 60% of the population don't have an adequate and nutritious diet. Why on earth should we, these people be different? There's, and there's quite a lot of research finding that, isn't there, that um, voters are much more likely to vote for um, more parties that are more to the right when the, when the population feel more frightened, hence the... Um, popularity for instance perhaps of the conservatives during one time during the austerity when people are frightened about whether they're going to have an have an income but I was curious about um 
whether I was just thinking about the fact that people pay good money to be frightened, don't they? People go yeah. watch horror films. They enjoy going on scary roller coasters. So it's just something different about our relationship to fear than perhaps um, disgust and, and anger. Yes, very good point. Um, you could use a word like thrill, couldn't you? And the late Roger Grafe, who's uh, died not long ago, who made some very good films about crime and criminal justice, he once uh, remarked to me that um, he felt that a lot of crime policy was, was about entertainment, and that people will get a buzz out of about the, the thrills of crime. And then, of course, there's also a commercial interest, isn't there? Um, I watch, I confess now, should I ask you to uh, not record this bit, but I, I, yes, I'll come out and say I do watch a bit of true crime stuff on television. And every advert break now, there seems to be, take it, they take the opportunity to tell you about new and exciting ways of protecting your house. So here you are watching all about people who break into your house. And here are people are saying you should be frightened. But if you buy our product, then you're going to be a lot safer. But of course, the behavioral consequences of being made to be frightened, um, in fact, often make us more fearful. Fear is contagious. It spreads from person to person. And it spreads also from source of fear, one source of fear to another source of fear. So I, I'm sure that, that the thrill that you've been talking about is, is part of that story, but there's also that uh, valence of the emotion of fear itself. Yeah, recently we've, we've discussed kind of like women's safety on, on the streets and the fact that actually men are much more likely to be attacked on the street, significantly more so, and yet all of the, the discourse that you see in the media is all about women's safety, which as then as a woman, you end up being frightened about walking home in a way that I don't suppose men perhaps are. It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I, I absolutely take your point. But um, a long time ago, when there was a reaction to this, that kind of line of reasoning, when, when criminologists said, you don't need to be frightened because, you know, the average of incidents is, is so low and, and so on. And there's a, a joke, isn't there, about the uh, statistician who drowned in a lake that was an average of six inches deep. Um, because there are some people are much more at risk than others and the consequences of some kinds of attack are so much worse for others so it's not irrational even if you are statistically in a low risk category to be extremely frightened of something which if it were to occur would be absolutely catastrophic for your well-being so I've worked with young men for example who expect a little bit of scrap a little bit of bother and when they go out for a drink it's almost part of what it means I'm not sure that any woman would view this in, in quite the same way so certainly you're right but I think it's important that we don't sort of brush this off and dismiss those genuine fears it's a question of what you do with that fear and and how you make sure that it doesn't dominate you and and what steps you can take to to reduce likelihood. Thank you. Um, I mean, it is interesting that some of the words that we've been using, like taint and contagion, which kind of point to the sort of physical origins of some of these uh, emotions. Yeah. So why don't we talk about disgust more than we we do? Do you think? I think you've already made a really important point in just introduce, reintroducing that topic. And I think it's hard to talk about because disgust is disgusting. <laughs> um, there, is, there are people who differ about 
its significance, uh, whether it has any place at all. And uh, I think Musbaum has herself concluded that disgust ought to be eliminated. Um, whether it can be eliminated from our ways of thinking about this, I don't, I don't know. Others have said that it, it's, it's a good guide. Um, and there's a quotation, uh, and I, in a very unscholarly way, I have to confess that I can't remember who said it now, but uh, someone said, shallow are the souls that have forgotten how to shudder. And as you've just said, David, there's a, a, a physical grounding in some of these emotions and they have evolved uh, in the interests of, of, of the human race. Um, if we perhaps the origin of disgust is to keep us away from things that are, are noxious, things that might make us sick. Uh, and other things about disgust is that it, uh, we think that it contaminates. If you get too near to something that is disgusting, then it might taint and contaminate you. And people who are associated with disgusting things or disgusting people um, may themselves acquire some of that. And I don't want to go too far into this final thought, but I sometimes wonder some experiences that children whose parents, particularly mothers, are in prison have to undergo are horrible. And prison staff are doing much better now in many places. And I know that there's some great initiatives and I absolutely celebrate them. But it remains the case that we as a society, I think, are willing to tolerate a treatment of children whose parents have been sent to prison, and we tolerate this mistreatment in a way that we would not for, for other uh, groups in society. And we take comfort in, we rationalise this by saying, well, it's all the fault of their parents. You know, if, if, if mum hadn't committed these crimes, she wouldn't be in prison in the first place. But I just wonder if there's also some suggestion of these ugly sentiments about the apple not falling far from the tree and all this nonsense, that maybe the children themselves are at some very deep level that we clearly wouldn't want to articulate because it's so obviously offensive, but whether there is just something that lingers in the psyche of some people that suggests that these, are ch that these children are not worthy of the compassion that we would routinely hope we would afford to others. Do you think that might be right or have I got that wrong? Sounds yeah. like there's a lot of truth in that, Rob, but it's just, um, it's quite startling to think mm. about, isn't it? Mm. Um, you've linked us to uh, parents in prison. Um, so do you think Dominic Raab was motivated by disgust when he made his statement about the release of the mother of baby P? I'm sure that there's something in that. Um, how much, I'm, I'm not absolutely sure. And it may be that he, depending on how cynical I'm feeling about politicians, uh, you could say that he was motivated by disgust or that he was conjuring it um, for his own political benefit. I've no reason to doubt that it is a sincere expression of the disgust that many of us might feel when we think about the actions that got uh, this little boy's mother sent to prison in the first place. Um, whether there's nothing to be gained, is there, by being seen to side with people who've done dreadful things? And dispassionate arguments about this, about safety and so forth, um, 
look feeble alongside the emotions that we feel when we respond to horrible crimes. Maybe he's using this as part of a, a wider agenda because he's been open about his ambitions to reform the parole system. Um, he is at the moment, I think, castigating the parole board for doing their legal duties <laughs> because their legal duty is, as we know, is to assess risk. And that's what they've done. And they believe that this woman is sufficiently safe and that precautions can be put in place to make sure that there is no or next to no chance of her behaving in, the, in this way again. And I think, I can't remember if we've already covered it, but people who are not in a position to make any judgments about whether or not someone is risky will nevertheless say that they are risky because it is a much more respectable way of expressing their opposition and to say that what they did was was vile. So indeed, the use of the word vile is instructive and also I think has a, an honesty to it. I think that's exactly what um, many people m might think. Yes, I'm sure that's uh, right, uh, Rob, albeit somewhat um, pessimistic. Um, yeah, um, yeah, I, it, it is pessimistic, but I, I think these things are very difficult to shake off because crimes that are really awful, you know, part of the contamination is that they contaminate the whole character. Mm. We don't think this is somebody who has done a bad thing. We think this is someone who is intrinsically a bad person. And one defining ethic of probation and perhaps other um, criminal justice agencies is a belief in the possibility of change. It's usually first on the list of probation values, isn't it? And it may be um, that it, that's, again, is considered to be unpopular because there are, there's a sense in which many people think that some people can't change those who've done the, the very worst things. Incidentally, if, as we're talking about politicians, I don't know, I think some politicians like to present themselves as frustrated by the law and by human rights conventions from championing the causes that they take to be popular. And uh, an example of, uh, of this is Margaret Thatcher, who of course was in the news over the weekend because her statue in Grantham was egged by an indignant passerby. She openly expressed support for the death penalty. Is that something that she really wanted? I don't know, how could I? But I can see that the posture of a frustrated popular champion can be a good look politically, because at the time that she was talking about the reintroduction of the death penalty, it was for terrorism. Um, and particularly in the context of some of the activities of the IRA. And I think she knew that there could that um, the capital punishment in those in that context could be profoundly counterproductive. Um, but it was good to say, oh, I'd like to do this. Unfortunately, all these soppy politicians and human rights conventions won't let me. And I think that can be a, a politically quite a good look. And I wonder if uh, maybe there's some of that for Dominic Raab. But although Dominic Raab isn't my favourite person, I'm not wanting to um, impute any kind of cynicism or insincerity to what he did. I think he probably is motivated by disgust. And some people would say that's as it should be, but I'd like him to recognize that um, rather than to pretend that there's some other thing that's animating him. 
Thank you. I'm, I'm curious, Rob, about why you didn't include hate in your emotions in this chapter. Do you know, Naomi, I thought that was a great question. I enjoyed all your questions when you were kind enough to send them through in advance. But I thought this was a particularly good one. And when you prompted me to the honest, the first honest answer is I never thought of it. The uh, when you prompted me to start thinking about it, my first thought was to wonder, can you hate someone you've never met? Is hate too personal to account for the motivations that drive the will to punish? But I think you probably can hate people or profess to hate people that you've never met. Uh, I know people who would point to a particular public figure and say, I absolutely hate that dot, dot, dot. So I think you can. Um, at one side, it borders on anger. At another side, it borders on disgust. But I'm very far from worked out on this particular topic. And I definitely need to, to think much harder about it. But I, I would like to add this. We talk a lot, don't we, about hate crimes and from time to time and hate speech and so forth. Mm -hmm. That's not personal in the sense of what defines a hate crime, I think, is that you are attacking an individual or because they are a member of a group rather than because they are that individual. I think that's true of hate crime. And I find it fascinating to think that the last group of people that it is permissible and even sometimes encouraged to hate are offenders, particularly offenders of some type. So we will see in the media hate talk, sometimes inciting active hate crime against most obviously sex offenders. So I think it borders on anger, it borders on disgust. You've helped me to think about that and I need to go and, and ponder much more because I didn't think of it and I need to understand it better than I feel what I do. D do you have any thoughts yourself, Naomi? Because I'm sure you've thought hard about that too. Well, no, no, I don't. It was just, you know, it was, to me, it was um, that kind of like goes with that same bracket, but I suppose mm. I think also that hatred of, of people who offend, I think actually potentially perpetuates well, like disgust um, and anger potentially perpetuates cycles of offending as well, because, you know, when the son chooses to print photos of people and castigate them publicly, actually we know that people offend because they feel bad about themselves anyway and look for antisocial ways to, you know, they can't manage their emotions, so they often engage in antisocial behaviour as a way of coping with their emotions. So if we're... Um, directing hatred or disgust or what other kind of like venomous emotions at them you know potentially we we are a factor in their recidivism at some level and the conversations don't seem all that helpful if we really want a society that's safer um, because actually stirring up all these emotions doesn't actually um, make keep keep society safe I don't believe I think you put that very well, and I, I completely agree. There's this view, isn't there, that offenders don't feel ashamed enough of what they do, they've done, but those of us who work closely with people who have committed crimes know often that the shame is absolutely overwhelming for them. And if you are just sort of give them anger and disgust and treat them as someone to be shunned and feared, that's not really going to do anything more except make reoffending more likely. 
Absolutely. I mean, I love the cover of your your book, your new book that's yeah. coming out, because <clears throat> I think it highlights how for many people who offend, they feel excluded from society. They don't feel they're part of it. And actually these emotions like anger and disgust kind of make that that distance firmer and more tangible than if we were to extend something more compassionate towards them. There's a lovely picture, the author, which is for the moment escapes me, but I've used, I put it up on my, um, on my blog, um, uh, must be more than a year ago now. And there's a, somebody is entering a room and there are people sitting at a table. And as this person, because we are, it's us who's approaching this table, there's a chair there, but everybody's looking up and they're whispering and the, the dog's snarling and the, uh, there's a, a butler who's looking down his nose at us. And with, they're not running away, but are we welcome? Are we heck? <laughs> yeah, precisely. Yeah, one of the one of the absent emotions that you you highlight in your chapters is the absence of discussions of sadness. What what's the impact of this? Do you think? I think normally, if we if we considered, think of some grave crimes, and let's you know just to take some horrible crime. Imagine that some ch a child has been killed. Normally, if a child has died, our first reaction would be to be to, to feel sad, to feel empathy for, but especially for the parents and for others who love this child. And that seems to me a, a, a very normal and healthy response. In the case of crime, sometimes we don't get sad, we get angry. And maybe we would do better if we got sadder than we do. And we talk up this anger. And sometimes, as I was saying earlier, with my analogy with grieving, earlier um, that um, this blocks um, some kind of healthy process towards resolution because whatever happens to the um, offender there is still a parent who has to cope with the loss of a child even if you know whatever fantasy that that's that's that can't can't be changed and this is one of Martha Nussbaum's misgivings that retribution acts out the fantasy that the past can be changed seems as if um, you're saying there's a, a hypocrisy in us in that you know that dynamic of not managing your sadness or vulnerability gets channeled into angry aggressive destructive behaviors in people who offend but it seems that we're not above that our, ourselves I think it's it's hard because we're culturally trapped aren't we we're supposed to feel angry with people who do really bad things and that I think it would liberate us to begin to think about things differently, but I'd never impute bad faith to people who react in this way. I mean, as a parent myself, I know precisely how I would feel in the, this unimaginably dreadful world in which any of my loved ones were harmed. I know how I would feel. Um, so when people say, well, what if it was your child? That cuts no ice with me. But I think ultimately, I don't want to live in a world in which we relate to one another in that way. And I think we, uh, there's lots of evidence to show that <clears throat> this imagined vengeance does not produce the kind of resolution and feeling of peace that um, it, may, it may sometimes in the short term. You know, you do hear victims in America, don't you, and say, well, now this person is in prison forever or even in America has been put to death. Um, you know, I do feel now that my life can move on. But I just wonder if 
how long that lasts. I think there's a time dimension to all of that. And there is still the challenge of having to cope with the, the dreadful pain and loss that they've experienced. Thank you. What, what are the costs of unacknowledged emotions to the well-being of those on the receiving end of justice, do you think? Yeah, well, <clears throat> again, it's a really important question. And I think that one of the costs is that um, unacknowledged, these emotions fuel punitiveness. So those on the sharp end are going to experience longer sentences because it's it's a view, I think a, quite a common view that unacknowledged emotions can have unhappy effects um, and you need to accept and appraise these emotions and to work out what follows from that. So, okay, I'm angry, but what am I going to do with that anger? What, what's a constructive place to put that? I think I'm talking about here, system two, putting system one to the tests. So a dreadful crime has taken place. We have this uh, punitive, <clears throat> immediately punitive reactions towards it, but we may then want to, to pause. We may need to put them in um, David's file of sentences that I hope I will not pass <laughs> and, and, and think about what the implications of that are. So here, I think, anger, fear and disgust, as I think I said already, they can be valuable alarms, but they can be very poor advisors on the actions that, that we need to take. So that, that's that policy level, is, that's one answer. There's also a question, I think, that, that your question could be taken as asking what it means for penal practitioners who are working with prisoners, with probationers. I think here to remember that as we are increasingly coming to be aware, trauma and adverse childhood experiences are a common lot of many of the people in the penal population. And in the course of their sentences, they're going to experience any number of hardships, pains and deprivations, which aggravate all of that. So any failure of those who work with them to acknowledge and respond to those emotions must be a serious obstacle to any constructive work towards rehabilitation as well as constituting a further oppression in its own right. So you know me to be someone who um, commends the value of um, emotional literacy um, and some of the skills that are deployed in working with people, pro-social modeling, expressions of support, compliments. If you haven't got emotional literacy, they will be taken as, and probably will be, manipulative and condescending unless you are aware of your own emotions and the emotions of other people when you're doing those things. Thank you, Rob. So looking at things, the same thing from a slightly different angle, do you think that unacknowledged emotions impact on the well-being of staff or practitioners who work within the criminal justice system? Yes, I do believe that. And when <clears throat> we last spoke on, on, on the first podcast, I mentioned uh, my friend Charlotte Knight. And I know that you subsequently interviewed her, didn't you, um, for, for this series. And Charlotte helped me to think very much about this. Um, I don't think that you can work well with people in distress unless you are aware of your own feelings and sensitive to the emotions of other people. Not only will you do some damage to them, but I think you run the risk of damaging yourself. 
um, and things like burnout and stress um, and despondency and depression can follow. Because I think that it, emotions that we're reluctant to acknowledge have a, a nasty way of biting us, or to use a different metaphor of, of tripping us up if we don't begin to, to understand those. Um, and I think many of us can think of occasions when we were angry and because we didn't recognize this, it shaped our behavior in unhelpful ways. Of course, if someone had told us that we're only doing something because we're angry, wouldn't necessarily have made us any less angry. But if we had come to that realization for ourselves, then we may have been able to comport ourselves in ways that would have um, respected the kind of persons that we aspire to be. What we might do perhaps to help here is a tough question. And again, Charlotte in her excellent book engages with that. When I joined the probation service, um, my senior uh, uh, probation officer, who was my supervisor, regarded it as part of his job to help me to, uh, to cope with the, the, those feelings. But I do think that that relationship, role relationship, has been rather corrupted by imperatives of line management and managerialism and staff appraisal. It may not be safe to disclose feelings to some managers in some organisations. And one remedy to this is, um, I don't know if this is a word, but it was introduced to me by a Dutch person who said that we shouldn't think about supervision, we should think of intervision. And I asked her to explain that. And she said, well, simply peer group support, because that's not contaminated by this uh, um, the managerial imperatives. It is safe with staff and colleagues that you trust and peers to say how you might feel. And that is a, a a great source of, of personal protection, helping you to acknowledge these emotions and helping you to deal with their effect upon you. Thank you, that's very helpful. So just one step further, because it, 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 it sounds as if there might be some benefits to organizations, the organizations that administer justice, if they were to acknowledge and be more transparent about the role that uh, emotions play. Yes, I think uh, there certainly would be. They would be able to reflect more wisely, I think, on their policies. Um, but also, I think they could uh, be much more sensitive to the uh, to the needs of their staff um, and to support them in that and say that, you know, the emotions you feel, there's, there's nothing unprofessional or or sloppy and about uh, about having feelings of this sort. Um, what, what rounded human being does not have emotions if uh, indeed we sometimes if we think we're dealing with people who are emotionless sometimes we think they may be psychopathic we don't regard it as a virtue not to have emotions um so i think that uh, as we were saying before i think that to acknowledge those emotions and to encourage people uh, and to allow people to set aside this difference again between emotion and reason and not say, okay, if you that it's unprofessional to feel emotions. Judges are bad at this, aren't they? I think I don't allow any any emotion to enter into my judgment. Well, yes, you do, Your Honour, and so you should. Hmm. Yes, very well put. So I was going to ask you, uh, what a more emotionally literate criminal justice system might look like. Um, but I'm aware that's a very big question, and we've 
kept you already for quite a long while. Is there a way of summing that up very briefly? I'm not sure that there is. I think, again, openness, reflectiveness and candor to recognize the limits of the emotions, even as we recognize their value, as I was saying, that they are good signals, but poor counselors. And if we begin to understand that and acknowledge their play in the way that I've tried to argue in my book, I think that that would help us perhaps to understand where we're going and the implications of the very natural automatic system one responses that we have to crimes, especially horrible ones. Mm. Thank you. I wonder um, whether part of that might be people just talking much more frequently about emotions like anger, fear and disgust. You very rarely hear these words. I mean, disgust, you never hear. No. Used, really. Um, maybe sometimes people can admit to being angry, but fear is is quite rarely discussed. We spent a long time working with staff to try and get them to acknowledge when they felt frightened. But I think if if everyone working within the criminal justice system was much more comfortable with using the language of emotions, it might be a, a better system. And I completely agree. I, I think there are cultural obstacles to that, not just specific professional obstacles to it, but I'm sure that you're right. So finally, Rob, what role does emotional literacy play in your own well-being? How do you look after yourself? <laughs> Um, I have people who I love and who love me, and I think they're the most important things in, in, in that regard. Um, I think that perhaps the um, educational background I had disposed, disposed me to be rather doubtful about, about emotion. And I think it was only later in life that I began to be more aware of my own emotions. And I think that well, I, I think I like me more for that than if I continue to try to pretend that I had no emotions or emotions of another sort. It doesn't, it doesn't always help, you know. Many of us have a disposition towards emotions that we wish we didn't have. For example, becoming angry about too many things too often and how we express that. But a good beginning to that is to recognise that you are indeed feeling angry. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. That was a, a terrific conversation again. You don't disappoint. So that was brilliant. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to talk to you both. And thanks again for giving me the opportunity. Thanks a lot, Rob. Really good All to right. see you again.